0: Ladies and gentlemen, we, people of color, daughters and sons of immigrants, we belong to Europe. I am. We are the story of Europe. Hello everybody and welcome to this new episode of We Belong, the stories of the new daughters of Europe. I'm Yasmin O'Iran and I'm an expert on peace and security at the AU-EU Youth Cooperation Hub. And today, while the coronavirus crisis keeps hitting our continent and paralyzing our societies, we keep our promise to give a voice to the extraordinary daughters of Europe. Today, we take you to Spain to meet a committed and inspiring young woman. She advocates against racism and Islamophobia. She talks to us from Barcelona, a city that I love. And her name is Miriam Hatibi. Hello, Miriam.
1: Hello, Yasmin. How are
0: you? I'm fine. Thank you. (laughs) Welcome, Miriam. Um, My first question is, of course, related to the coronavirus. Um, How are you? How do you deal with this crisis, with the confinement and the health emergency that your country faces since it's, you know, the second worst affected country in the world in terms of fatalities. How do you deal with this? It's
1: um it's really weird because we have to stay at home all the time and a lot of like everything got canceled. It's like you have to change your routines and get used to working from home. So it's like a really weird moment. I think we're not really realizing what's going on.
0: So I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> I understand it's a tough time, and we don't re- really know till how much time it will last this confinement. So we don't see the end of it, and it might it might be a bit stressing and, and frustrating. But uh, we want still to, to 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 you know to entertain our pe- our our audience. And we spoke last week with the Bellamy, which is from Italy, and you know she's uh, living in one of the most affected areas. And um, we're hearing an improvement these days for, uh, for the situation in Italy. So there is still hope for Spain too, hopefully. Um, but um, this does not prevent us from narrating your story, Miriam. Um, in every episode, we ask uh, to our guests a word that illustrates her story or her personality. So what is your word? So my word
1: is indignada. It's a Spanish word and it actually gave name to these uh, political movements that took place a few years ago that were basically against the situation and what was going on. But I like the word because it's an adjective that basically means that you're mad at something, that you don't like what's going on, that you feel kind of angry. And at the end of the day, that means that you're going to create a movement or be part of a movement. So I, re- I really like that word, indignada. I think we should use it more and like feel that we belong into that word.
0: Beautiful. And it's powerful how a word can translate into a movement and the one that you choose particularly illustrates it. Um, Beautiful. I also read on your biography that you are a data analyst. Can you tell more about it?
1: Yes. Um, I'm a well. I'm actually a communications consultant. I'm just realizing that I sent you an old bio. Uh, but we work with social media data, social media analysis, and basically we analyze the conversation that takes place in social media, especially in Twitter, to see how it evolves and what people are saying on a specific subject, on a specific brand or an institution. So. It's it's really interesting to see what's going on in the conversation and how people are using social media to express themselves and what they really want. Like in the last two weeks, we've been analyzing the whole conversation around the coronavirus. And we've been like looking at the emojis that people were using and you see how it went from this um, kind of funny emoji, like people were actually making jokes about the whole thing to more like using the praying emoji or the heart or even the crying one. So it's like we are starting to understand how serious everything is. So that's kind of a part of what I do.
0: Yeah, I think people went from laughing about it to being a bit uh, desperate for this, this situation.
1: <laughs> in Spain, like, people are always... I think it's the same in Italy. So people are always joking about everything. And whenever something happens, like, you see this whole meme culture starting to create funny stories, funny memes, funny images. And that's what happened here with the coronavirus. At the beginning, everyone was making jokes about absolutely everything. And now it's like people are realizing that, that it's actually a serious issue and we have no clue when when it will be over, if it will be over. And that's like... Well, that's a Spanish way
0: of handling things. So, <laughs> I understand. I understand. And you do you think that also while you use your uh, your uh, communication data analysis, do you find uh, a way to use this data also to? denounce um, topics that are very close to you, for example, racism?
1: Um, yes, like it's, it's weird, but because I work in communications and my activism uses communications a lot, I feel that I can learn from both the things that I do in order to become better in both of them. So when I'm at work, when I'm at the office, I'm not really doing activism, but at the same time, when you develop a communication strategy, you can do it in a way that's actually anti-racist. Even by the pictures that you use, by the words that you are using, you can create a text or a campaign, that a, a digital campaign even, that takes into account the diversity that you have within the country. And when I've had the chance to do that, it felt really good, because you know that um, you're not actually... Being like a visible activist at that time, it's not like I go to a client and tell them, Oh, you should have this inclusion plan and this and that. It's just that when I choose the images, I choose them taking into account that we have a diverse country, we have a diverse Europe, and that should be also seen within the campaigns. And yeah, it's like an interesting thing to do because it's not the biggest project, but it's like it makes me feel good to be honest.
0: <laughs> That's beautiful to just uh, merge your passion with your uh, profession. Um, Let's talk about um, Islamophobia. You have uh, with me, we have a common point, which is um, also common for thousands of women living in Europe. And it's the fact that we both wear a hijab, um, an adornment that covers our head and our hair. Um, And this choice, at least for me, It's a a choice that has caused um, many, many criticism, racism, Islamophobic attacks, even from um, the far right in France, for example. So did you also face discriminations at at the public level because of your uh, hijab? And can you recall some episodes?
1: Yes, I actually saw what went with you when you were chosen the the young people young one of the year or something like that at the European Union and I was following like the, the news and what was published after you were chosen, I was like kinda of shocked and disappointed but not surprised. So Yes, I think we all go through the same. In my case, um, I, I try to avoid speaking only about Islamophobia because of the hijab. Because, of course, Islamophobia means a lot more than being um, discriminated against because of your veil. But in my case, like when I published my first book, um, I remember some some outlets, some media that didn't want to interview me because I was wearing a hijab. So they said that they would not uh, interview me or cover my book. And some spaces where I could not um, present my book because of that. And I was lucky enough that the publisher was taking care of me and they would tell me about this stuff. Like, they would tell me about these situations. Otherwise, I would have never known. But yes, I faced, like, this, this kind of situations and at the same time, like, a great paternalism. The other day, I was speaking to someone who works at tv and they were like oh you know someone will call you from tv because they are trying to work on bringing inclusion into tv and being more diverse and this and but they are still working on that so i was like wait you're hiring people all the time especially like in these tv shows where you have people just commenting on different stuff like there's always new faces all the time you're bringing in new people so do you really have to go through this whole process in order to call me? Um, It felt like really weird because it's not direct discrimination. It's not that they are telling you we're not going to call you, but it's like, if we ever call you, it will be because we went through this whole diversity plan and decided whether we wanted you here or not. And that does not happen with other people. So it feels like weird because you have to be thinking about direct discrimination, but at the same time, also this kind of paternalistic situations that you go through and you know you're not comfortable with but at the same time you cannot really identify why so it's just like I know that I'm not being treated like everyone else but I don't know why it's making me so uncomfortable if they are trying so I don't know if you've had this feeling before but it's like it feels you it it makes you feel bad you know (laughs) because like maybe I'm not grateful enough but yeah I'm indignada so (laughs) what can I do about it
0: I understand. And I think that there is really a fear from society to just see this diversity. And so people might not be ready to face it. And the um, brave act to just put a woman out there and be like, okay, this is not normal. uh, It's something that media are not yet ready to do, I think. And also in politics. Um, And the sad thing is that often when we see these women we we just see them as a token as you know to stick the box to just you know put that diversity uh, you know <laughs> in the puzzle but um, sometimes we need also token what do you think we need <laughs> more token al- at least there is there there unfortunately uh, we have to, to promote this diversity because it's not that evident to just, uh, to just have it naturally. So, forcing it might be a solution to at least have it.
1: Yes, yes, I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about positive dis- discrimination and I completely agree with what you're saying. Like, we're always the token one. And it's like when you're somewhere speaking, it's not uh, Yasmin or it's not Miriam, it's the Muslim one. So, whatever you say, Uh, will be actually taken as if you were speaking for the whole Muslim community and anything you say will be read from the perspective of whether you're Muslim or not. So whatever I say, even if it's related to economics, politics, um, any topic I might speak about, there will always be a comment saying something like um, try saying that in Saudi Arabia, try saying that in your country, Uh, you shouldn't be speaking if you're wearing a scarf, like whatever you say. But at the same time, I think that we, we need to use it, this tokenization. So using the tools that you have and, and just trying to open up a space for us, but knowing that it's not the ideal space. So I think that the problem comes when we as Muslim women start believing that we are already achieved. So when you have a Muslim woman being, for example, in a campaign for Nike, and so you know that that campaign for Nike is using you because they want to reach Muslim women target. You need to be aware of that. Yes, you are representing Muslim women and you are in an advertisement with your hijab or as a, as an Asian woman or whatever. And that's a good thing. But we need to be always aware of the fact that just as um, as much as you are there, it's just a small thing that you are doing. And there's a lot more to do. So. I don't know if this is making sense, but I think that sometimes we start celebrating way too much, way too soon. So, for example, having in 2020 a Muslim woman in a Levi's campaign, that's not like a great achievement. It should have come a lot earlier. Having a Muslim woman in the Congress for the first time, it's not like the greatest achievement. I mean, yes, we did not expect it, but it was not a normal situation that we didn't have Muslim people in politics. So I think that sometimes we get... um, to happy way too soon and at the same time the the first muslim woman culture is really problematic to me like i was just um, browsing instagram earlier and i saw that uh, an american muslim woman was announcing that she was the first one to run for congress in new jersey and it's like when are we going to stop thinking about whether we are the first one or whether there is a movement being created i mean at the end of, the united states had a black president he was the first black president of the united states But the United States is probably more racist now than it was eight or 10 years ago. So celebrating the first one culture is just making a thing that we have to start ticking boxes of whether we went somewhere or not, and not whether we changed the whole culture and the whole mindset behind it. And I think um, it's better to maybe not have a president, but have a whole team of, I don't know, consultants around the president that's diverse, rather than just celebrating the fact that we are in the picture. I don't know how you feel about that, but that's like my, my situation now.
0: I totally agree. And, you know, when I was um, uh, getting out there, putting out there, we belong. This was precisely one of the first uh, messages that I wanted to put out. And I quickly mentioned it on, on the introduction video, but I wanted to emphasize this, you know, this problem of, of being the first. You know, being the first to achieve something doesn't mean we, we, we made it. It doesn't mean we... Because we focus too much on that only person and we forget the bigger picture, right?
1: Totally, yes, totally. And it's really... I, I mean, at the end, of it's just um, this way of being really individualist. Is it is it the word? Individualist, individualistic? When it comes to <laughs> social movements, it's like you need to have the first one and it's normally with a name and the whole media will want to interview them. But it's just one person and i think that we we need always to bring the collective with us always to think about what movement you're part of so yes Yasmin, you were chosen um i I never remember the name of of the of of the award you were given but it's just like yes that's there but at the end of you're creating a movement that's that's built by a lot more people so Yes, and I think that's a strategy that we can also use. So, you know, if I'm being interviewed by someone and they are like, oh, you're the first Muslim who did that. So maybe I can quote another colleague and be like, yeah, but I was inspired by her, by Yasmin's word or I was inspired by Sirin's um, writing or I was inspired by, I don't know, by Hria's book. So, you know, it's just, you can also use your position to introduce those names.
0: In terms of representation and giving a voice to people that are um, often discriminated against. You have been very vocal during the terrorist attacks in Barcelona and Cambrils in uh, 2017. How these attacks encouraged Islamophobia and how did Muslims react in Spain? Um,
1: so, So after the attacks... Like on, on that first night, there were a lot of Muslim people um, on the media and and like being vocal against hate speech and against terror attacks. So it was like the Muslim community was really active and the whole society, like in general, they were really against having hate speech in the streets on the weeks following the attacks. So if you, if you see pictures from the demonstration that took place against terrorism. It was like a week. Yeah, it was like a week after the attacks. A lot of the, like of what people were saying was that we did not want hate speech in our cities, not terrorist attack, but not, uh, not Islamophobia as well. So it was like everyone was really involved in having a society that was not Islamophobic and, and racist. But of course there were some attacks against mosques and against some Muslim people as well. But I think that it was better than in other European countries in that sense. Especially because in Barcelona, we have a plan against Islamophobia from the local government. So it's like, there has been a lot of work done during the last years. And that was actually shown in during the attacks. Like you could see that it was in a city where everyone was really involved in having an inclusive society and, and all of that. So. It could have been worse.
0: Okay. Um, and how did you react, particularly? I know that you have been very vocal during demonstrations. Um, yeah. Can you tell us more about it? So um, I was already working with an NGO at that
1: time, and when the attacks took place, like we, we had already seen what happened in in the UK and in in France, in Belgium, so we kind of knew that it was important to react as fast as we could. So we organized ourselves with other young people in order to be present in the media, to speak against hate speech and against terrorism, just to avoid like media portraying Muslims as terrorists and actually having Muslims there speaking for themselves and being like, we know that this has been a terrorist attack, but this is not what we want in our countries. So... We organized ourselves through a WhatsApp group. And it it was weird because everyone wanted interviews with Muslim young people. But at the same time, like, we didn't really understand what was going on. As much as we had been working for a lot of time in order to know what we wanted and know how we felt as young Muslim Europeans, it was still confusing. Because everyone was saying that the terrorists were young people. They were... Everyone was saying that they were normal. And it felt like... We were also targeted. Like um, every one of us could just wake up one day and suddenly be a terrorist. So it was confusing in that sense because people were speaking about the terrorists just like
0: they would speak about us. So it was yeah, weird. it's exactly the same that we felt in in France uh, following the terrorist attacks in Paris and um, this sense of a double pain because of. As Muslims, we feel attacked because we are betrayed in our values, but also as citizens. And then we're also attacked by people that are scared of us or that fear that we might become radicalized. And so it's really a work of deconstructing and trying to um, change the image that, that people have of us, but also internally to work to prevent violent extremism. So um, you also write, uh, Miriam, you've wrote two books and one of them is called Look, at, Look Me in the Eye and the second is Leila. Um, can you tell us more about it?
1: So Look Me in the Eye is more of like um, a book that I wrote about my experience as a, like as a daughter of migrants and a Muslim woman here in Spain. And I wanted to talk about stuff just like inclusion, diversity, the media, about growing up different, about realizing that I was different and I was proud of it. So it was more just like my thoughts in a book. And Leila is a children's book. And we worked with Maria Benarab. She's an illustrator. And it was, it's the story of Leila. She's the daughter of a Muslim woman. And she's explaining at school why she speaks, why her parents speak Moroccan, why her mom wears henna, why she celebrates Ramadan. And at the same time, she's discovering that even Muslim communities are really diverse. So it's kind of following Leila during, like, well, she gets to know herself and she also explains herself. So that's a children's book. And Look Me In The Eye was more like what I think and how I would explain it in during like I don't know if when you go to a high school or you have a speech it's always you always have to explain the same things so I thought maybe if I write them down in a book people will be able to read it and they will not ask me anymore but they still ask. So
0: <laughs> And I think it's also important both for children but for uh, for uh, also for young women to have this voice and to read this voice and uh, just to to identify themselves in your story or in the story of Leila, of a person that might come with, from different backgrounds, but still uh, often were born in, in the same country where we witness these discriminations and just to, yeah, to say that we can be and have different cultures and different identities, but still feel Spanish, Italians, French. Um, it's also a work of citizenship, don't you think? It's you know, it's interesting also to involve uh, institution and local institution, by the way, to to do this work. Yes,
1: that that would be great if institutions were involved. We wouldn't have to do it as individual activists or small movements. But th- the experience of writing a book, like it was nice in the sense that representation always works in two ways. So. Uh, Like, on the one hand, you always deconstruct some of the ideas that people have about you. So as a young Muslim woman, I was able to tell my story and not wait for people to, to tell it for me. And at the same time, you had people like seeing themselves in your words. So in the case of Look Me In The Eye, I had young Muslim women or Moroccan women telling me that they were finally able to put words in feelings that they already had so they they were uncomfortable with some situations and they just didn't know how to describe them or how to answer to them so they didn't even know if what was going on was only they were the only ones living it or if it was actually like something that other people went through so that was really interesting and in the case of the children's book The messages that I got were more in, like, saying um, I never saw my name in a children's book. I never saw people who looked like me in children's book when I was a kid. And it was more Moroccan moms or daughters of Moroccans reading it to to their kids because they, they didn't have an experience like that when they were young. So it was like, you don't really need to learn about Muslim families because you're one, but you're just buying that book because you know that you never see yourself in books like that so that was that was really nice and i like that part of the experience also like being able to create maybe a story that that people who never really felt represented in would finally see themselves in bookstores and actually there's this um kind of funny anecdote i don't know if that's the word in english but i remember going to a bookstore here in barcelona asking for a book and the the employee there told me like oh no we don't have it because people like you don't really come over here like she she was basically saying that muslim women didn't buy books so because i was with another with another muslim friend she was also wearing the veil and she basically told us people like you don't come to bookstores so having a book published and sold in that bookstore like a year later was kind of i don't know it felt good <laughs> so
0: and i think that you know the violence of not having access to culture and thinking that women like us We, uh, yeah, we're not just present on on public spaces as library, as, uh, you know, spaces of knowledge. Uh, It's sad, but at the same time, it's a void that we need to fill. And through, uh, you know, writing books, but also organizing cultural events, it's a good way to, to, you know, to create this space. And by the way, I know that you're also this book person of the Ibn Battuta Foundation, that is also a cultural foundation, right? And um, for those who don't know, Ibn Battuta was a medieval Moroccan traveler who wrote one of the most, uh, the world's most famous uh, travel logs, which, which is called uh, *Rihla*. Um, what's role? Um this foundation is playing in shaping the intercultural dialogue and what's um yeah what's the activities that they organize
1: So the the foundation it kind of has like two type of activities one is more like the daily type of activity working in the neighborhood where the location is where the foundation is located it's a neighborhood with uh, a lot of migration especially coming from morocco bangladesh and pakistan so a lot of the the work that takes place there is more helping people learn the language spanish and catalan finding jobs creating their own businesses so it's an ngo more working with people in that sense Directly with people in the neighborhood, and the other type of work that we do is more cultural, more aimed at bringing cultures together. So, for example, there's a lot of dates, important dates here in Spain that take place, and even Batuta take, like participates in those dates. For example, in San Jordi, which is the international, like the International Day of the Book, is really important here in Barcelona, and we participate in that by bringing also like books inspired by Moroccan stories or by Moroccan authors. Um, there's also the like, like different cultural activities that take place in Spain that are really known to the Spanish people. And we have the foundation participating in them in order to bring, bringing people together. So
0: that's very good. And also I know that's in in Barcelona, there is, yeah, there is a particular uh, area where there is a, a, condense, a condensation of, of immigrants. Uh, do you think that people still can um, meet and, you know, social classes interact or it's really, you know, kind of seclusion or uh, the division that we can see, for example, also in France?
1: It's It's really hard because there's also, like you said, it's not only about the culture, but also about the class. And when you have cities and neighborhoods that are mostly like, migrants living there, it's because of the social class. I mean, uh, you you may see Moroccan people living in other neighborhoods in Barcelona, but that means that they belong to a different class. It's not like the majority of Moroccan people here in Barcelona. So, I mean, people can get together and get to know each other and actually try to learn from one another and try to respect one another. But I think it's important to to understand that not everyone, not everyone wants that. So... That doesn't mean that they have not read. That doesn't mean that they are worse people. Well, maybe. But that does not mean necessarily that you can just tag them like, okay, so it's because they are uncultured or because they have not met anyone coming from Morocco. It's just that there's people who are narrow-minded. So they will not want to to, to like close that gap between cultures. And I, I'm not saying that it's okay. I'm just saying that we have to accept that and not waste our energy on that type of people. On the other hand, there's a lot of people, especially in schools, in different associations, in neighborhoods, in in places like sports, uh, music, theater, where you can get people to talk about a subject and then start knowing people who may be different from what they have already known. So it's just about finding those spaces where you can actually create an environment that feels natural for everyone to share their story. So you cannot bring people together and be like, okay, so you're Moroccan, you're Spanish, now we have to be friends. It's just, it would be really awkward. It's just about creating spaces that where people feel like they are sharing something. I mean, maybe it's a party in the neighborhood. Maybe it's because they shop together. Maybe it's because they are learning something together. And from, yes, from their too. own, yes. And then th- that's where they start creating their links and they start... Like they become friends and, and that's the right. nice thing because if, if you force people to get, get along that, that doesn't, that's not really changing society.
0: Of course. Yeah, of course. And I think creating activities where, yeah, there is this interaction between classes, between uh, culture is essential. And I really appreciate your work for, you know, a democratization, if I could say, of culture and making it available for everybody and creating stories where people can identify too. Um, Miriam, let's conclude. Um, what is your key and your message to women that face racism and Islamophobia in Europe and that listen to us? Uh, what is one key that you want to share with them?
1: Um, I think it's important to like acknowledge that we all get tired at some point and it's okay to feel down sometimes and feel like you do not belong in any movement. And then that doesn't mean that you will not be able to find yours. It's just that social movements are really hard sometimes for women to, to get into and find them their place, even if it's like a feminist movement. But I think it's just about finding the right community and finding a place where you can actually express your, express your doubts, express what you care about and start working from there on. But just realizing that it's, it's not always nice and it's not always like a party. It's not always fun. But you can find those spaces. So I don't know. I mean, it's not like the big key, but I think understanding that you can be disappointed within spaces where you were supposed to feel safe. I mean, it's not your fault. It just happens and it will happen to everyone, I think. So that was not very positive, but I don't know if that's... You no, mean?
0: definitely, definitely. And I think that you know, acknowledging it and being aware that this is not the end of the war and that yeah, you can get out of it.
1: Because yeah, you, you know, Yasmin, if I if I cannot, like what I what I see with with young Muslim girls, it's just like they, as women, you as a woman, you always want to be a part of a feminist movement when you get into social movements. So when you have uh, young Muslim women or young Moroccan women. Being part of feminist movements, you see them being really active, trying to go to every single meeting, trying to be in every demonstration. They are always trying to bring more people into the movement. So they have a lot of energy. And then six months, eight months later, they feel really, really, really disappointed. And sometimes they just like leave those groups and they don't go back to the feminist movement or they don't go back to social movements just because they had a lot of energy at the beginning. They felt disappointed. They felt like... It was not worth it and they just left. So I think if from the beginning you understand that you will be disappointed at some point and that's not the end of the world, it's just about creating another movement, I think that works better for everyone.
0: Mm, Thank you, definitely. Thank you so much, Miriam. Thank you for your inspiring words and for accepting our invitation.
1: Thank you. It was really nice talking to you.
0: Thank you. Mucha, mucha, mucha suerte <laughs> for your country to recover from the crisis. And we send you much love. Thank you so much. You too. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Bye. This was the end of our third episode. To conclude, I would like to share with you some keys. The first key that I would like to share with you is is the Code Academy platform. You can find it online and it's free and it's a platform where you can learn how to code. And the second opportunity that I'm happy to share with you is the One Young World Scholarship. One Young World is a conference that is taking place every year in a different city. The past edition was in London and the next one will be in Munich in Germany. It's an opportunity for you to advocate is a young leader but also to meet many inspiring young people from all over the world so I really encourage you to check on their website and to apply you just listen to the we belong podcast which is a podcast produced by the cavalcade and you can find us on all podcast platforms and on social media on Facebook Instagram and Twitter don't hesitate to share with us your feedback And send us your stories of belonging. What does it mean for you to belong? Send to us your responses. And thank you for listening to We Belong.